0: Welcome to the first PwC Power and Utilities Tax Readiness Podcast. I'm excited uh, to kick off the discussion today. My name is Sal Montabano. I am the PwC U.S. tax leader for the Power and Utilities practice. And uh, we'd like to keep this podcast a recurring segment. So uh, we may not be doing it every week. It may be every six or eight weeks as topics come up. But stay tuned uh, for further topics. Today, we're going to kick it off with a discussion about tax proposals that a future President Biden may actually have and and the impacts that those tax proposals would have to the power and utilities sector. And I wanted to get Dua Lipa as my first guest, but I heard she was unavailable. So I've asked Scott McCandless to join as the first guest on the Power and Utilities Tax Podcast. Scott is a principal with our Washington National Tax Services Group. And you may know him as the co-host of Policy on Demand. And if you're not subscribing to Policy on Demand, you should. Uh, Reach out to your PWC tax personnel and see if you can get a subscription to that. Uh, Lots of good content on there.
1: Sure, Sal. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the inaugural episode. It's an honor to be here. The, the Policy on Demand series actually began uh, just as tax reform was rolling out. I think uh, there was such enormous demand to try to share some of the insights that we have from Washington, D.C. about what was unfolding really at sometimes on an hour by hour, a minute by minute basis. During the run up to tax reform, we found the best way to share those insights was through a new video platform. And that's what we created with Policy on Demand. And it's exactly that. It is essentially an accounting for TV show, for lack of a better description, and that's what it is. It's uh, myself and Cindy Bloom are the co-host, and we bring on a series of guests uh, with a variety of subject matter expertise to share their insights about tax technical issues, tax regulatory issues, as well as a look over the horizon for what's coming in the policy development space. So uh, hopefully it's of interest to, to those who are already using it for those who might be interested in, in uh, signing up.
0: Thanks, Scott. I appreciate that uh, update. And uh, you know, like you said, it was uh, started around the tax reform was kicking off uh, and getting serious and earnest. And it seems like ever since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we've had a series of legislative introductions of new provisions and additional insight to, to have to deal with, I guess, on a going-forward basis. And this is no exception uh, on what might happen in, with the November election here. So we wanted to focus on what happens under a President Biden, and I know that he's already introduced some of what he would like to do from a tax standpoint. So maybe you can elaborate on what aspects of Biden's tax plan have, made, have been made public at this point.
1: Uh, sure, you're exactly right that he actually has rolled out some fairly substantial and broad-based tax proposals. There might be a little bit of a lack of detail at this point, but that's not unusual. On the contrary, there is quite a bit of breadth here, and that is uh, pretty substantial at this stage, the uh, the campaign now, I think we're focusing mostly on, on uh, the prospects of what a President Biden would do because we, we're fairly confident we know what a second-term President Trump tax policy would look like. So it involve mostly continuing the TCJA and probably addressing uh, various elements of the TCJA that are scheduled to change. So current law... Is allowed to go forward without any change.
2: There would be a variety of alterations to the existing template of TCJA, including to the interest deduction uh, limitation on expensing and to the research expense. And I think that might be a good point for jumping off with of the Biden proposals. Uh, that's because under a President Biden, hypothetically, it seems unlikely that there would be much effort taken to avoid those changes. The ones that are already built into the TCJA, in other words, the change in the interest deduction limitation that would take it from the EBITDA metric to just EBIT that's more likely to go forward if there were Biden presidency. And same with expensing really, whereas a second term President Trump might try to adjust the expensing. It's due to ratchet down and that's scheduled to occur from the 100% where it currently is and go down over a period of years. In a second term, President Trump might be inclined to try to fix that and keep it at 100%, whereas the Biden administration might be looking at letting that lapse. I'm more interested in the research expense, though. That's one area where currently the research expense is scheduled to change to a capitalization and amortization standard under current law that's baked into the TCJA. If nothing is done about it, my guess is that both a second-term Trump administration and a Biden administration would both probably try to do something about that. Uh, and keep the research expense change from happening, because as is, it's so popular. So I think that's one important point as we look at the proposals uh, that have been rolled out, not forgetting uh, these various changes.
0: But with respect to to Biden, uh, if you can elaborate more on what we're seeing from a tax rate standpoint uh, with the big drop from 35 to 21% in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and maybe talk a little bit about this potential minimum tax on gap earnings, that would be helpful.
1: Sure, sure. Glad to. You're absolutely right that they are proposing a 28% corporate rate. So that would be a 7% jump from 21. Now, some of the campaign have uh, have hastened to say, "Look, we were proposing 28% under the Obama administration. That would have been a rate cut from 35 down to 28." But they're now in a position where arguing for a 28% rate is actually an increase rather than a cut from where it used to be. Not entirely clear whether a future Congress, even if it were completely in Democratic control. In other words, if you have Democrats win the White House and take the Senate away from the Republicans and hold the House, which they currently control, uh, even if they had that alignment, it's not entirely clear they would go as high as 20%, but that's certainly where uh, they are currently targeting their, their rate increase. But you're right Sal, to point out this other piece, which is new and could be very impactful, and that's essentially a 15% minimum tax on book income. It has a bit of a worldwide focus to it as well, so there's some international considerations that, that need to be thought out, but that's new and um, really reflects some changes thinking that's occurred over the last few years from a policy perspective, at least on on that side of the aisle, with regard to um, establishing more of a minimum tax approach. Uh, Obviously, the AMT uh, was changed by the TCJA, uh, but this would put it back and put it back in a very robust way.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting concept, Scott, and I know that, that that gets a lot of the headlines because it's such a unique provision with respect to that minimum tax on gap earnings. I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on what are the chances of something like that actually coming to fruition?
1: Sure. Great question. So the political stars would have to align really for all of this to happen, including that 28 percent rate. And certainly something as really new as this tax on book income. And that uh, I, I mentioned it briefly that it would require first um, Democrats having both the White House and Congress, including both the House and the Senate on the Congress side. But even then, it will be difficult. And there are really two ways to go. Uh, if we keep the current procedures that the Senate operates under in place, including the filibuster, then that means they have that 60 vote threshold. And in the past, the way to get around the 60 vote threshold was to use the budget reconciliation tool. That's what Republicans used to pass TCJA. That, that was used to pass part of the Obamacare uh, when, when President Obama was president. It was used to pass some welfare reform when Clinton was president. So it's been used over over the years, but it's very difficult because even when you have control, the level of unanimity you have to get from even within your own caucus, even all the Democrats was trying to agree, isn't always easy, just as it was difficult for all the Republicans to agree, even on TCJA. That's still a difficult needle to thread, but it's doable. And that would be the technique. So the big question becomes whether the Democrats, if they took the Senate, would throw out the filibuster. There's been some rumblings about that over the years, and certainly we've already seen a loosening of the filibuster standard with regard to judges. And there's been some talk that they might do so um, and, and reduce the threshold from 60 to a simple majority in the Senate with regard to legislation. If that were true, if that were to come to pass, then it makes it much more likely and much easier uh, to get to a 28% rate, to get it to this uh, 15% minimum tax on um, Book income that they've been proposing so really there's a big question there as to just what they would do procedurally and I would encourage all of the listeners uh, to really keep an ear out for that the extent to which the campaign both the Biden campaign uh, as well as Democrats more generally speak openly about what they want to do with the filibuster whether they want to keep it or whether they want to modify it because that will be uh, a really big decision point or pivot point around which uh, the likelihood of implementation of any of these proposals would turn.
0: That's a great, great point, Scott. And so maybe building on that, uh, how quickly would we expect legislation to move, even in a scenario where the Democrats control both the House and Senate and the White House?
1: Sure. Yeah, great question. And I think this uh, is an important reflection of the way in which uh, Republicans and Democrats differ in their view of tax policy. Uh, Republicans really see it as something that's kind of a red meat, bread and butter issue for them, where uh, they really want to change the tax code um, for their own purposes to make it work in the ways they think it it should work. And that's from their perspective. On the Democrat side, though, their view of the tax code tends to be driven more as a means by which to raise revenue for other policy measures. Uh, So first, in terms of timing, we don't necessarily expect that any of these uh, tax policy proposals from the Biden administration would be top of mind. Uh, Immigration, healthcare climate change, those are more likely policy issues to be first in line uh, after a, a hypothetical inauguration of the new Biden administration. Um, to the extent tax reform or tax changes to the extent we're talking about them will come into play, it will probably be more in the context of how to raise the revenue that might be required to either pay for or partially offset some of those other policy priorities, particularly around uh, the uh, the climate change side. Now, if they get so far as proposing a climate tax, a uh, climate um, uh, uh, carbon tax, excuse me, if they get to a carbon tax, which they haven't, and I haven't seen that actually proposed yet. So I don't want to get too ahead of either us or, or the campaign, but if they were to propose that, well, then maybe that would be a discreet way to pay for something where the policies are related carbon tax and climate change and so forth. Uh, but they're uh, estimating uh, outside groups. Anyway, there's no official estimate of the Biden tax proposal so far, but they're expecting to raise uh, at least 2 to 3 maybe even 3.4 trillion dollars from some of these proposals on their tax side if if they're uh, able to execute all of them. Uh, that's a pretty big number and that would pay for a lot of policy priorities. So it's important to to see the prism through which Democrats see tax policy and that's mainly as a way to pay for their other policy priorities and to bring that full circle to answer your question about timing. That means that unless they come up uh, as ways to pay for some of the more urgent specific policy items such as immigration or healthcare or climate change, then tax reform or tax changes to the extent we're talking about them are unlikely to be really top of the docket in the new administration. They would probably get some attention in 2021 uh, and it might be more piecemeal. In other words, well, we need to pay for X amount and the 28% rate would do that. So we'll pluck that piece out of the Biden plan rather than doing it holistically or comprehensively. Uh, so with my guess is that it will slip a little bit on the agenda and be a, a more middle of the year or later in the year uh, aspect to a Biden administration in 2021.
0: Yeah. So, so it sounds like there's a lot of water to cross under that bridge before uh, we that's have right. anything set in stone. <laughs> that, that's yes. great, Scott. And and I'll say one more question before we uh, let, let you go on that piece, but renewable. So, we're in a period where the wind credit is in the process of phasing out and we're starting to hit the phase out of solar credits as well, at least on the begin construction piece of it. Where would we be from an extender standpoint uh, under a Biden proposal?
1: Uh, Sure. They uh, have been pretty explicit about doing some things on the environmental side, including um, increased carbon capture and storage incentives. Uh, They've talked specifically about deductions for energy technology upgrades. Uh, and smart metering. Um, and it's interesting that they put that in the category of deductions, at least that's the way I've seen it described so far, as opposed to a credit. Uh, but um, the smart meters are something that they're very interested in. Um, I should also note on the flip side that they're talking about eliminating some fossil fuel incentives. Uh, they haven't been very specific about that, but in the past Democrats have uh, talked about doing away with things like percentage depletion or at least reducing it. Uh, and then just on the the other side, uh, area in which they seem to want to create some more tax incentive options would be electrical uh, vehicle credits, EV credits, uh, and trying to increase uh, electric vehicle production and usage uh, in in the country. And that might include some battery technology upgrades or incentives for upgrades as well.
0: All right, Scott, that's very helpful. And I I guess we have the advantage of talking about this here in July of 2020. So anything can (laughs) happen between now and November. And then even after November, anything can happen with regard to some of these tax proposals. But I appreciate your insights and being the first guest on this Power and Utilities podcast.
1: My pleasure, Sal. Thank you for your time and best wishes to your listeners.
0: Thank you. So with that, I would like to pivot to a couple aspects of the Biden proposals and how it may impact power and utilities companies from a rate-making standpoint. Uh, First is to talk about the tax rate increase from 21 to presumably 28%, although it could be anything. Uh, And secondly is maybe touch on that minimum tax on gap earnings a little bit and some of the things to think about there. Uh, But to talk about the rate increase, uh, we have to go back to the excess deferred taxes. And with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there was a specific provision in that Act, 13001D, that mandated the use of the average rate assumption method for protected deferred taxes, which would mostly be method life depreciation differences. And that's a mouthful, but all that really means is that instead of just writing down your deferred taxes from 35 to 21%, at least with respect to the protected deferred taxes, you had to reclass that out of deferred taxes and hang up an excess deferred tax liability and give those excess deferred taxes over the remaining book life of the assets back to customers. So it really mandated a spread of the amortization of that excess deferred tax over a long period of time. So now we have a rate increase coming, presumably just on the heels of tax reform within the last three or four years, depending on when another bill would actually get passed. And I think with respect to excess deferred, you'd have to break it up into three buckets. At least that's the way I'm looking at it. One, you'd have to look at the protected excess that already exists under the TCJA. Two, you would have to look at originating method life differences post TCJA. So what happens after 2017, with regard to depreciation differences. And then three, the unprotected excess deferred taxes, which would be the excess deferreds that weren't necessarily called out as needing to use ARAM under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. With respect to that first bucket, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act protected piece, as I mentioned, we have an ARAM mandate in the law itself And it's important to note that all the excess deferred tax provisions, both in the TCJA and in the Tax Reform Act of 1986, are in the acts themselves. They're not in the tax code. So that's something to look at if we have a tax rate increase. Would they actually put something in that tax act under a Biden proposal that would specifically tell you what to do with some of these deficient deferred taxes that would be created if the rate goes from 21 to 28 percent. But be that as it may, if you look at the TCJA, it mandates the use of that average rate assumption method, which basically means that you have to look at the average tax rate that those deferred taxes were established at. And I think the easiest thing to see that is maybe pick an example. So if we pick 2015 assets and we look at the average rate that those deferred taxes were set up at, we know that some of it's going to be set up at 35 percent and some of it's going to be set up at 21 percent. So the average rate may be 30 percent, just to throw out an example. What we know then is that as those deferred taxes reverse or as book depreciation is taken, we're reversing those deferred taxes at a 30% rate, which would be the average rate that those deferred taxes were set up at. The first 21% of that is just regular deferred taxes because we currently have a 21% tax rate. The next 9% of that would be the reversal of the excess. So as you take the book depreciation on that, you're writing off that 9% excess every year. It would seem that if we had a tax rate increase from twenty-one to twenty-eight percent, we would still be subject to A RAM in the TCJA absent any change of law in the new tax proposal. So the question would be, how do you do excess deferred? And I would think that those would still reverse at a thirty percent rate. It's just that the mix between your regular deferred tax reversal and your excess deferred tax reversal would change. So if the rate goes from 21 to 28%, that first 28% of the reversal would be, quote-unquote, regular deferred taxes. The last 2% would be that excess deferred tax reversal. So all that's a long way of saying that the reversals would still be the same. It's just that you would remeasure your excess down, basically from the original 14% to whatever the new rate would be. With regard to the second bucket, the post-TCJA originating differences, and in particular, the originating depreciation differences, those would still be technically protected under the tax code. So method life depreciation differences are still protected. But the question would be, would that mean anything with respect to deficient deferred taxes? So if you're setting up those deferred taxes at a 21% rate after 2017, you would now have to set up a regulatory asset to recover the difference between that 21% rate and whatever the new rate would be, presumably 28%. And the question is, would that regulatory asset be protected and would there be specific provisions in the act that would tell you how you're going to collect those deferred taxes? Would it be over the life of the assets? Would it be over a 10-year period? Or would the rules simply be up to the commissions to decide how you're going to collect that deficient deferred tax? The last bucket would be the unprotected deferred taxes. And with the unprotected deferred taxes under the TCJA, we saw a little bit of the Wild West, it was really up to the commission and the utility to decide how they were going to give back those excess deferred taxes. Some companies gave them back immediately to the customers. Some companies proposed to give them back over the average rate assumption method, which could be a 28, 30, 35 year period. And we saw rates in between could be five years, could be 10 years. One trend that we've seen is an acceleration in the give back with uh, COVID. So companies are looking for ways to reduce the rate shock, be more customer friendly. And one of the levers they have to do that is to give back the unprotected deferred taxes more quickly as a way to reduce taxes and cost of service and be more customer friendly. So we have seen some movement to give that back more quickly than the deals that were originally cut after the TCJA between the various commissions and utilities. And the question here with this deficient deferred taxes, with it going from 21 to 28%, is will the collection period of the deficiency mirror the give back of the excess? So if you're giving back unprotected deferred taxes over a five-year period now, will you be able to collect that deficient deferred tax pool over that same five-year period going forward, or will your commission require you to collect that over a longer period of time in order to reduce the rate impact to customers? A lot of unanswered questions with regard to that, but in the absence of a specific rule in the new tax act, those unprotected deferred taxes will be up to the commission and the utility to decide... How you're going to collect those deficient deferred taxes. So I would look at it as those three buckets to consider uh, the existing protected excess, the post-TCJA deficient deferred taxes, and then the unprotected either excess or deficient deferred taxes to negotiate with your commission. I would like to pivot now to some minimum tax considerations. And This is an interesting concept. So as Scott was saying, some sort of 15% tax on worldwide gap earnings. And to me, the question is, from a gap and and regulatory standpoint, would this gap minimum tax be treated like an AMT tax, or would it be considered more of an alternative income taxes where deferred taxes would would go away uh, because it would be considered more of an alternative income tax? regulatory scheme. So AMT or the old AMT, alternative minimum tax, has special rules within GAAP. If you look at ASC 740-10-30-10, it basically tells you that you book deferred taxes at the regular tax rate. So even if you are a chronic AMT taxpayer, you don't book your deferred taxes at the AMT tax rate. But again, those rules are specific to the, I guess, long-standing alternative minimum tax that existed before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. If this new gap minimum tax will be treated like the old AMT, then presumably you wouldn't remeasure your deferred taxes, even if you're a gap minimum tax payer, which a lot of utilities would be, if we're talking about a 15% tax rate on gap earnings. But if it's considered more of an alternative tax, where either you paid the regular tax and your deferred taxes are going to reverse like they would now, or if you plan to be in that alternative tax of the gap minimum tax, where you'd be in that over time, would you look at whether those deferred taxes would reverse and whether they would have any impact on your taxes when they reverse? And would you have to revi- reverse all those deferred taxes and write them off your books? Now, the question is, what kind of rate base implications would that have if you have to write off your existing deferred taxes? Well, as most of you probably know or are listening to this webcast, otherwise you probably wouldn't have picked this webcast to listen to, deferred taxes are a rate base offset. So deferred taxes reduce rate base and are... Customer friendly in the sense that they reduce revenues that are collected from the ratepayers and customers. If you had to write off those deferred taxes, because when they reverse, they wouldn't have any impact on this gap minimum tax, that would have quite a rate shock implication to rates because now rate base would be restored for your cumulative deferred taxes that exist on your books. And that seems like kind of a far-fetched phenomenon, quite frankly. I doubt many commissions are going to bear uh, rate bases being uh, increased by a billion dollars or more for this write-off of deferred taxes. So I guess I would normally say that stranger things have happened, and this is extremely unlikely. It seems like that they would write something into the law to prevent uh, the immediate rate shock of these deferred taxes being eliminated, or perhaps the gap rules would be clarified that this minimum tax be treated like the old AMT and deferred taxes wouldn't be remeasured. I would say stranger things have happened, but you know we're living in this COVID-19 universe right now, so maybe we are seeing a lot of strange things happen. <laughs> I'm at the point where I would never say never at this point, but it's something to think about as this minimum tax maybe does or doesn't get momentum on a going-forward basis. So as I mentioned with Scott, a lot of uh, water to cross under that bridge as we move forward with some of these provisions, but I did want to throw out some of the considerations to think about both on excess deferred taxes or deficient deferred taxes, be that as it may, and some of these minimum tax considerations as this uh, gap proposal uh, tax on gap earnings builds momentum. So with that, I want to conclude the first tax P and U tax podcast. And, you know, I'm open to suggestions on future topics for future podcasts. If you know of anything you want to hear us uh, riff on a little bit, send me an email, give me a call, let me know what topics are on your mind for future podcasts. With that, thank you.